This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Well, shall we begin? And what's the time-honored tradition whenever we gather uh, as a community of believers to almost pretty much do anything? We pray. We have Neville pray. That's exactly what we do. Okay. It's a yeah, just like Christchurch tradition. Okay, fair enough. Okay. Father, thank you for this place, this opportunity, Lord, this time set aside to study your word. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be in us and amongst us to guide us into that truth and to glorify our Lord. We ask in his name. Amen. Amen. Indeed, to the glory of God. Okay, so we are actually about to study Acts chapter 4, and for those uh, that were here last, last week, we studied Acts chapter 3. And to go over uh, some of the things that we had said, we have our notes, and then uh, Neville's going to add a bit, because um, we don't always get a chance to see it, say everything. We get sometimes distracted, sometimes we forget, sometimes we get home and go, oh my gosh, I should have added that. But... Uh, It'll happen now. So we have been studying the book of Acts, particularly the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts contains the most references to the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Yet, Acts chapter 3 contains no mention of the Holy Spirit at all. We do not see his activity overtly expressed or his presence acknowledged. It begins with a non-Pacific time sequence. One day and only mentions the exploits of two apostles, Peter and John. Therefore, begging the question, where are the other apostles and disciples? How much time has passed since Acts 2 and the outpouring of the Spirit? What other deeds have the apostles been doing in Jerusalem? Sacred history does not inform us, and that is the genre of the book of Acts. It is sacred history. It is not a gospel. It is not an epistle. The sacred history of other traditions, notably the Orthodox, explain that the apostles divided up the world and set off to spread the good news. Um, they sat down and they drew lots, right? and they decided, you go to India, and you go to Syria, and you go to Egypt, and away they went. Documents such as the Acts of Paul, the Acts of Peter, and the Acts of Thomas uh, these are other, other books which, have been, which we still have and have been heavily, heavily uh, edited as they've gone through history. So we don't have an original. Uh, so no one knows which part of the book is original and which part is uh, an edition. So they're not in anyone's Bible. But they are around. Particularly, for example, how do we know that Peter was crucified upside down? <laughs> okay. It's not just because the internet tells us, it's because one of these other documents says so. And so that becomes the tradition. But that's where we get that information from. Alright, so documents such as the Acts of Paul, Acts of Peter, Acts of Thomas, thus explaining why the book of Acts mentions so few other apostles by name as they had actually already left Jerusalem. Despite the opening verse, Luke is very specific of his time sequence, the time of the sacrifice and the place of the context, 
the gate beautiful and Solomon's colonnade. These are all things an eyewitness can record accurately. Recall that the Orthodox tradition has Luke as a Jew from Antioch and a disciple of Jesus. Luke appears to have seen the temple and he knows his topography well. Peter heals a nameless cripple with no mention of the spirit. The man is healed through no faith of his own. The healing takes effect once Peter helps the man to his feet. Faith and action are co-partners. The healing is performed in the name of Jesus. In the name of is the ancient public assent denoting loyalty to someone. Why the spirit is explicitly not mentioned, we do not know. The healing attracts attention. Just about everything the apostles do now attracts attention. Peter has an opportunity to declare that they are witnesses of the resurrection. He calls for repentance as part of the process of salvation. Peter makes no mention of the blood of Jesus as part of the process of salvation. Note, Peter and John are in the temple. Temple prayer life continues to be important for the early community. Those who are hearing Peter already believe in God, else why are they in the temple? They are Jews who understand the important concept of repentance. Peter publicly declares that Jesus has been glorified by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, thus linking theologically to the Hebrew Bible. He also calls his listeners Israelites. Despite Israel not existing as a state, they are in the province of Judea. Again, theologically, Israel exists independent of land, and at this point in history, most definitely not the church. In Peter's speech, he declares that Messiah will remain in heaven until all things are restored, as foretold by the prophets. It is assumed his hearers understand what that restoration entails, but it's not explained. This is going to happen. This is going to all, all the things that the prophets have foretold, they will, those things will be restored. Let's not go into depth as to what that is. Peter instructs everyone to listen to the Messiah. Those who do not are cut off from the community. And in Greek, that means utterly destroyed. Listen is also the Hebrew word for obey. Jesus says, blessed is he who hears my words and obeys them. It's the, pretty much, I think, a rundown of the Inyan. And now for a little bit more information on listen. Yes, I'm just going to read that verse from Acts chapter 3. Um, so this is um, verse 22. Moses said, and Peter's quoting here, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And this is a very key phrase, and it identifies uh, Jesus as the hoped-for prophet. That comes from Deuteronomy. But what I wanted to point out was that on two previous occasions during uh, Jesus' ministry, two very significant occasions, this word is pronounced over him from the highest authority. And the one I want you to turn to, first of all, is in Luke's Gospel, Chapter 9. Um, so if someone can find that and read a few verses for us from 
chapter 9, verse 33 through to 36. So this is about the transfiguration. Okay, you will be familiar with this, but let's read what Luke has volunteered to read. I'll read. 33 to what? 33 to 36. Okay. And as they were leaving Yeshua, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three support, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. While he was yet saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then the voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, the one I have chosen. Listen to him. And after the voice happened, Yeshua was found alone. They kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. So you recognize that phrase, it comes from heaven. My Bible has it, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Three short phrases. But what is interesting about these three phrases is that in this, actually the voice from heaven, the Lord or our angel, whoever it is, is referencing scripture in the way that the Pharisees and the sages used to do this. In other words, hinting at three scriptures in the Tanakh. And the first one, uh, taking it in the sequence there, this is my son. This is a reference from Psalm 2, verse 6. And the second one, my chosen one. This is a reference from Isaiah 42, verse 1. Um, maybe we should read these out, actually. So can someone find the, um, the Psalm 2, verse 6, and someone else the Isaiah 42, verse 1? And then the third one, which we had quoted it more fully, is from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Um, and someone else maybe can read that out. I have a spare Bible here. <laughs> and so, who's got the Psalms verse? Uh, verse 6. Yeah. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Yeah, thank you. Is that verse 6? Yeah, verse 6 and 7. Okay. Oops. And, so, and the Isaiah 42. Thank you. 42, 42. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. And put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Right, yes. So it has there this, the, my beloved or my chosen one. Um, and uh, finally, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Does someone have that one? Yes, please. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me and Naomi from your brothers. It is him, you shall listen. Okay, thank you. Um, but the, the interesting thing about this, I think it's a little bit more than interesting, is that these three illusions are packed together with great intensity here, and they represent from the three most, arguably the most important books in each of the three sections of the Tanakh, 
the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. So Deuteronomy is arguably the principal book of the Torah, it was regarded as such. And then Isaiah is the principal book of the prophets, and the Psalms is the principal book of the writings. And what is interesting, two things, is that these are the Old Testament books that are most quoted in the New Testament. And secondly, they are the Old Testament books of which we find the most fragments in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this not only has, so this uh, reference to uh, listen to him, in other words, the identification of Jesus as the prophet, not only happens here, but also happened at his baptism. So on these two key occasions, the voice from heaven references these things um, in a very uh, Jewish sort of way, by alluding to these, these key scriptures. The other thing I want to, okay, so um, I was reading, uh, I happened to be reading Micah the other day, and um, one verse suddenly stood out to me with respect to this thing that we were, this situation we're reading about, which is the, the healing of a lame man, having an, a massive impact on the, you know, the authorities, everybody around. You know, I'm assuming there were other miracles, but this man who was, lame from birth that everybody knew suddenly had an amazing impact. So um, let's just turn to this verse which is in, in Micah, Micah chapter 4. And the verses I'll read will be verses 6 and 7. But I want to give you the context first. So have we uh, found Micah chapter 4? The context is, and you probably recognize, I'll just read the first two verses of this. It shall come to pass in the latter days, from verse one, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So this is almost exactly the same as Isaiah chapter 2. And, my, and they were contemporaries, Micah and Isaiah, more or less. I'm not quite sure who, who's borrowing from whom or whether the Lord revealed it exactly the same to both of them. I, I think it's probably one, one is borrowing it from the other, but they, they finished with a slightly different verse. But this is a really heavy-duty um, prophecy about the fulfillment of the Lord and his work and the center of Jerusalem in that respect. And so jumping to verse six, and it says, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I've afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Isn't that an interesting reference to the lame? That the lame will be a word, a phrase to characterize those who will become the remnant and then be glorified by God and brought into his kingdom. And the very next verse, as for you, a watchtower of the flock, that in Hebrew, Migdal Eder. Migdal Eder is uh, the place near Bethlehem. Today we call that the shepherd's field. Mm -hmm. um, and 
where the, the prophet says, uh, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to you, daughter of Zion. So that's... Yeah, yeah. and uh, actually the other point to say is there's another situation further on in the book of Acts where another person who's lame from birth <coughs> has a really big impact. And this is at Lystra in, I think it's Acts 24, I can't remember the verse. So this is the occasion when Paul heals someone who's lame from birth and Timothy is with him and suddenly the, the Gentile crowd want to bring them gifts and Make worship, them gods, yeah, them that's gods. right. Yeah. And it's just another situation of a lame person being healed, having an extraordinary effect. You know, and they, Paul and Barnabas have a hard time just kind of holding it down, you know, yeah. stopping the people doing something inappropriate. Okay, so let's read uh, Acts 4. Oh, first of all, is there any discussion to conclude on Acts 3? Okay, let's read Acts 4. Um, normally, we're actually sitting in a circle, and it's very easy to go around. It's a lot harder like this. So, any suggestions? Zigzag along the route. Zigzag along the route. It's too dark. Can't read. If you can't read, just pass it. Whoever's here can read. I'll start. You don't have a Bible. You are next. Great. All right. So now in Acts 4, we have the results, okay, of, uh, of, of, of this healing. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were indignant because Peter and John were teaching the people and announcing in Yeshua the resurrection of the dead. And they laid hands on them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. The next day the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, uh, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Who's oh, oh. Um. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel. If we are being called to a hope today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and were being asked how he was healed. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by whom this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the soul that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Who is this salvation in any other Now when I saw the bones of Peter and John and perceived that they were 
an educated enough brain, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. Saying, what shall we do with these men? For indeed, it's obvious to everyone living in Jerusalem that a remarkable miracle has happened through them and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads more further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. I lost. <laughs> uh, as for us, we're not we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Yeshua. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. That there was no needy person among them, from time to time that those who owned land or houses sold them, bought the, bought the money uh, from the sales of 
themselves. And laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And Joseph, by the apostles, was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and the country of Cyprus. So the field he owned you, and brought the money and put it into the apostles' feet. All right. Okay, long chapter. But on a surface reading, is there anything that jumped out? Anything that stood out? Anything that you've noticed before or not noticed before? Anything that actually impacted you the most? I'm just thinking when we will do that. When we will do what? Signs and wonders. Yes, signs and wonders and when we will have everything in common. Not counting hours and we will have no need of person between us. Interesting. Okay. Yes. Anybody else? Anybody got an answer why we don't do that? <laughs> <laughs> Sell all our houses and, and uh, make sure there's no needy person between us. Anyone know a good answer, probably why we don't? We don't so so you put the onus back on us, okay? What's a, actually a rather more obvious practical one? That they thought the Yeshua was coming soon. It's one option. There's just too darn many of, of us. We could sell everything that we owned right now. We would still not have as much to share with our two billion people, and we would soon run out of it. Mm. Um, it it's true. It's a it's a wonderful ideal, and they did it. Mm -hmm. okay? But notice they had houses. They had lands, plural. Did they sell all of them? No. Right. They might have sold two houses and kept one. They might have sold half their land. And to get to the other, but uh, so so it's, it's very interesting. People, it'd be great to do it, and I'm looking forward to you all sharing with me. <laughs> okay, um, it's better. Yeah, and it's one of those things. Would we could we do this again? Interesting. We can talk about that um, when we get to those verses. I mean, first we have to get really rich enough to share. <laughs> the idea of generosity, though, should never diminish. I don't think. Yeah. Yes. Because if you have a need, what should be my responsibility to your need? To fulfill it. Yes. Right? That is, is, is one of those. But you don't need to go to the book of Acts to find that. But anyway, yes, the apostle, the early community did have a, um, a, a very sharing, generous nature. Anything else stand out? Yeah, I thought it was interesting the place that they were at was shaken. Yeah. Yeah. So before what happened? Before they share Bolton. Before they get filled with the spirit. Oh yeah. yeah. For some reason there's this connection between a shaking and a and a, and an outpouring. Okay. Let's have a look at the text in depth. 
especially when noting the Holy Spirit shows up. Uh, what he did and why he did what he did. So, the priests, uh, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees are the ones who are now attracted to what Peter and John are doing. So, who are these characters? Who are the priests in the temple? Caiaphas, the high priest. It was definitely one of them, yes. The Levites who were doing their, doing their job. Doing their job. Yeah. Particularly, you know, at the t- temple, you had people who were on a rota system. Mm-hmm. So these are the rostered people for that day, or that week, or whatever time. And, um, and they would be on a rota system. Some of them would have been from the correct priestly line, which according to the Bible is from the B'nai Zadok, sons of Zadok. Uh, some of them would have been illegitimate um, priests put in place by the Maccabees. That is, they would not have been um, proper Levites or Cohens. Okay, they would have been imposed there by the Maccabean being rulers. Who's the captain of the temple guard? Anyone know who he is? Um, he's kind of second in authority to what goes on there. So you laugh at his jokes. You laugh at his jokes, yes. So, yeah. Um, he's, he's a member of the... He's a member of the priestly family, and of our leading priestly family, and uh, he gets the, get that wonderful position. And who are the Sadducees? I know some of you know this. Come on, who are the Sadducees? Who doesn't believe in the religious guys that didn't quite believe in the eternal life or Yep, they didn't believe in resurrection. Or angels. Or angels. Or angels. Why not? How did these people come to this conclusion that there's no resurrection and that there's no angels? They were sad. I know. I, the number of you I told you, they were incredibly depressed. They took drugs and everything. They only held to the Torah, the first five books, yeah. as authoritative. Yeah. Remember, at the time of, of, this, of the Bible, there's no Bible. Yes. Right? They, they don't have what we call today the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Wow, which, which of the 22 books are you reading? They're still trying to figure out, the, the world, still trying to figure out which books we should be reading. So all these different groups, and, um, and this group called the Sadducees, that's the king, the uh, righteous ones, or pious ones, or whatever they want to be called, they, um, they only read the Torah. And I think they also had Joshua, I think, as well. Or, or, uh, named after, they were, yeah. They're also the aristocracy. Yes, they had a tendency to, to become wealthy, and uh, then like helps like. They made themselves quite wealthy, and uh, you can go and visit their mansions, and you can visit their, their the archaeology. They were, they were nice big houses, um, and, uh, and they, they were in charge. They weren't alone, and they didn't have sole, sole control. And you had other characters involved. Um, but they, they were definitely there, and they didn't believe in a resurrection. That was one of their big, big deals. But unlike the, uh, the Pharisees, anyone could aspire to be a Pharisee by just being really thorough in their biblical understanding and reading and memorization. But you couldn't aspire to be a Sadducee. You had to be born into the families. Right. So as a yeah. yeah. Genealogical position. 
Okay. So these guys uh, grab uh, uh, Peter and John, and it says in verse 2, they are greatly disturbed because of what? Preaching the resurrection. Yeah. Making a point. Yeah. So here they are in the temple, which is their seat of power, and they're being literally uh, challenged on their, own author- on their own theology. Because they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, but they're certainly getting people excited that there is one. Right? Um, they, verse 3, they seize Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Why does Luke record that little incident? What's so, what's so significant about uh, it was evening and they had to put him in, in prison, had to lock him up? No idea. Okay. Sir? That is correct. So Luke definitely knows the temple tradition. And the tradition is courts do not sit in judgment. Uh, they only sit in judgment during daylight hours. Okay, which makes Jesus' trial rather uh, poignant. So they know this. So they, they, they know that this is evening. This is part of the evening sacrifice where in the afternoon they will actually close the temple and more cleaning and all that kind of stuff. But, um, and we, we can't actually put these guys on trial until uh, tomorrow morning. And Luke knows. Once again, reinforcing the idea yes. that Luke, Luke knows his stuff. He knows topography, and, uh, and he knows the area, and he knows the customs. Okay, so he has to, they have to wait until the next day. However, but many who heard the message believed. And the number of men jumps to? Five. Okay, we're really pushing the numbers here. So, think about that for a second. What does this community now look like? What is our little community? It's not, our so not so little anymore, is it? Okay. It's a big congregation. It would, but they don't meet as one congregation, do they? So we don't have a lot of information about what our little early community looked. But let's try and imagine. If you had 5,000 people, what are some of the issues you are going to face? Place. Okay, place. Where do we meet? Cool. What are some of the obvious options? Temple. Temple. <laughs> okay, we've got a few places where we can all hang out. That's definitely one of them. So we've got, we can meet at the temple. What else? What other issues would a community of 5,000 people have? Preachers, pastors. Yes, where do we source our leadership team from? Mm-hmm. Who's actually, I mean, what were some of the other issues that would come? Yeah, how do we communicate between different houses and, you know, what, we, we don't have emails, we don't have, you know, uh, we don't have WhatsApp or things. We've, we've, we've essentially got a lots and lots of little communities, okay, and they're going to look to some sort of shepherd. Where do we source our shepherds from? Where do, who do they come from? Um, what do they say when they're actually there? What formulas do we do? Do we pray at seven? Do we all go shopping together if we're all in the community? <laughs> Everyone down to Super Deal on Friday before the Sabbath. You know, or um, the Shook. Or the Shook, yeah. Okay. It's interesting that you know, the text doesn't tell us. It's not concerned about how the new community would behave. 
Often we have to go to other sources like the Didache and other documents to say, how did you actually do church? I mean, this is just recording men. Mm-hmm. It's women. Oh, yeah, women and children. Did we start Sunday schools, right? Did we, you know, who did, what do we do with the kids? You know, um, these kinds of issues, which would have been there. Okay? That would have been there. Would have been, you get any number of people together. What do we do? We argue. <laughs> that is exactly what we do. Have coffee? We have coffee. <laughs> and argue over the coffee. We do, yeah, but we do, don't we? Okay. Someone, how, do we, how do we solve these internal issues? The, the, our sacred history is not concerned about that. We are. Why? Because we're in that community. I don't know anybody who does, isn't concerned about how you solve problems within your community. Okay. We, are, we all are. So we have to acknowledge that sometimes our Bible doesn't always tell us. Okay, other, other books, other, other epistles, other letters are going to give you us hints. And so this is how you do this, this is how you do that. Uh, it's not always going to be as clear cut. But our early community is now numbering up to 5,000 people and that's going to in, in, in cause some issues. It says 5,000, well mine says 5,000 men. Yeah, men. So does that mean there's actually a lot more because there's women and children as well? It could be. It could just be right, blanket anashim, right? If you were saying it in Hebrew or Aramaic, which would then imply women, women as well. Okay? Because remember, in Hebrew, when when you have a group of men and women, it becomes male. Doesn't matter how many, uh, one or the other. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. How do we know who's in and who's out? Mm-hmm. Do we have to wear funny clothing? <laughs> no, I'm serious. I mean, we, you have um, a picture on a, um, a fresco of a, early, of a church in Dura Europus, uh, which is in Syria. And it's a um, lovely uh, fresco. In, in terms of the town planning of the archaeology, the church and the synagogue are on the same street. <laughs> okay, and uh, so here you have the group of the believers. And the fresco is a scene of a baptism. And you see a man who's got no clothes on coming up out of a mikveh. It's a very Jewish thing to do. And as he's coming up out of the water, remember, in Jewish tradition, baptized people are not touched by anybody else. Mm-hmm. Right? In our, our tradition, right, we hold them down. Yes. yes? Okay, but in Jewish tradition, no one touches the person being baptized. It's between him and God. Um, as the man comes up out of the water, there's another man standing there with a robe, a white robe, which he's about to give him. So that when he comes up out of the water, he puts on a white robe to join a community, probably, where everyone has a white robe. Now, if you walked into a room where everyone had a white robe, what's the first thing that run through your brain? All angels here. Interesting. I love you. You're fantastic. My brain was screaming, cult. Okay, but um, I did. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't bring my white robe. I'm going around. Yom Kippur. What's going on? But this is a church, and so you know they were trying to 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 recapture the image of heaven. So what did John do when he saw into heaven? He saw everybody had a white robe. White robe. 
So that, you know, parts of the early community were like, well, dang it, let's bring heaven to earth. So everybody had a white robe. That's, that way we couldn't tell who was male or female, Jew or Greek, you know, slave or free, rich or poor. We were all the same, which in modern day would probably <laughs> scream cult. Yes, but, let's <laughs> okay, And oddly enough, I actually went to uh, a, a church in China where everybody had robes. Hmm. Why? Because when they came to, to, to faith in their community, mm-hmm. they didn't have a tradition of this is how you do church. So what did they do? They Googled it. Okay. <laughs> and they, what did they, they saw a picture of everybody sitting around a table. Mm-hmm. It's probably a Latin mass, Catholic mass, and everybody had robes on. So they said, oh, we should all wear robes. That's obviously what you do. So I show up and I'm going, oh my gosh. And they said, where's your robe? Forgot it. <laughs> really sorry. Can I borrow one of yours? <laughs> so it's, wow. There are communities that, that, that do that. But it's interesting that the early church is trying to figure out what rules do we do? What do we wear? When, when do we do it? Um, what prayers do we pray? Some of those hints do show up in the Didache, but it's not fully complete. can only give us a, a small glimpse of a, of a, of a section. And then everything else happens uh, as it spreads. But for the community in Jerusalem, they are now going to have 5,000, maybe even more, and they're going to be struck with these issues. The next day, to now after we've kept them in prison, what happens overnight? We're not told, not interested. The next day, the rulers, elders, teachers of the law meet in Jerusalem. Okay, we're going to later on call this thing a Sanhedrin. Uh, Anas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, and a guy called John Alexander. And what do you notice about these guys' names? Anas, Caiaphas, Alexander, or Greek. <laughs> yeah. okay. They were Greek names. Okay. Right. However, just, just saying that, that doesn't really mean anything. Okay. Um, my name's Aaron, I'm not Jewish. And uh, our first martyr is a guy called Stephanos. That's a nice Greek name, isn't it? So the name of your, uh, your name doesn't, just means that there was a heavy Greek influence at the time when they were naming names uh, of their kids. These guys are, however, very Jewish and they are actually in charge. And there are other people, high priest family, so they're quite important. Uh, they had Peter and, jo- uh, and John. Can I, can I just give a sidelight yes. on, the, on these guys? Yep. Um, Caiaphas and Annas. Um, so it was all a bit of a club there, you know, to be a high priest. Um, Annas uh, was the high priest from 86 to about 15. And Caiaphas was his son-in-law. And he was high priest from about AD 18 to AD 36. So he, he was, uh, as Luke tells us in the beginning, that he was basically responsible uh, for, from the side of the Sadducees for Jesus' death at trial and railroading that through. And Annas had five sons, and all of them were also high priests at one time or another. And I think, I guess those two names are two of them, or John Stroke Jonathan is one of them. Theophilus is another one. Theophilus, according to um, records, becomes the high priest after Caiaphas. Yeah. He's 37 to 41. That's right. And then. Matthias is another son that he was after in AD 43. Um, so it's, they basically had it all sewn up, in other words. But the little sidelight I wanted to share with you is that 
Um, two things. One is we know where Ananias' an, uh, grave is. It's down in the Hinnom Valley. Um, uh, do anybody know that there's a Greek Orthodox monastery down there to commemorate the field of blood, Akeldama? Have you heard of this one? Yes. Um, it's just um, further on down the hill a little bit from there. We know where it is because Josephus tells us that when the Romans were besieging uh, Jerusalem in AD 70, they built a, uh, an earthworks uh, siege wall, and he tells us the route it took going around, and it went down there, and, uh, and he mentions the impressive grave site of Annas. And so it's actually just down the hill on the slopes of the Hinnom Valley. And I visited it a couple of times, and I was kind of um, surprised to see that instead of being a uh, monument kind of guarded, for, you know, this is a 2,000 year old grave site, uh, it was in use and it was used to store animals in, uh, she, uh, goats and donkeys. And so the inside, I mean, I walked into the inside of it and uh, it's pretty thick with straw and manure, basically. So this, um, the grave of Annas is basically used. A big pile of poop. Yeah, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, I'm just vaguely wondering whether there was ever a prophecy that this man Ananias was going to end up yeah. in a pile of yeah. animals. Yeah, eventually. Yeah. Anyway, the other little sidelight is that um, Caiaphas, this son-in-law of uh, Annas, we have unearthed, when I say we, the, these clever archaeologists have found and identified in 1990 his ossuary, the bone box in which he was buried. So the, these are boxes, they're, uh, they're about you know, kind of half a meter long, about this high and this wide. And it was found uh, about two miles south of Jerusalem in the Peace Forest. Um, and it's ornately carved, and, but the interesting thing about it is that, um, apart from the fact that it's, it's a, a, one of these ossuaries that are characteristic of this period of time, that being a Sadducee and not believing in the resurrection, they still wanted to put their bones in a box just in case there was one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know, whether, but it, or else it was the uh, tradition that the richer you are, the fancier your ossuary was. Um, so the, these ossuaries are only appear for about 80 or 90 years, and they're associated with the stonemasonry industry within Jerusalem, because Herod, in order to do all these magnificent building works that he, ha he had, obviously starting, you know, center stage was the temple, he had to train up to do that. He had to train up a thousand Levites as stonemasons, because you couldn't have any Tom, Dick, and Harry running around on the Temple Mount building the temple. Only the Levites could walk there. So we had to train up a thousand of them to be stonemasons. And there, were, there was plenty of other areas where other people, and so there was a massive army of stonemasons. And so you had a couple of spin-off industries. And one of them was this making of ossuaries out of fairly soft chalk, but they were hollowed out of solid chalk and into which you would put, do the second burial. So people would be buried in a shroud and then probably a year later, you come back and have the second burial where, the, where the, the soft tissues have decayed away and you put the bones into the bone box and 
put them away. And there are lots of sites around Jerusalem where you can go and see these. Probably the best one, I think, is you go at the Mount of Olives and on the way you turn left into Dominus Flevit, the uh, little chapel there that overlooks Jerusalem. Well, just inside the gate on the right is a large, uh, well, it's part of a necropolis, part of a big uh, cemetery, and they have lots of these bone boxes on display that you can, you can see. But the interesting thing is that come AD 70, when the temple was destroyed and people were scattered, this industry stopped. There, it's no longer. So when, when you're looking around this part of the world and you find an ossuary, either very simply carved or with a fancy carving on, you know it's going to come from about um, from between BC 20 to AD 70, just that period. So they, I want to say burial, I mean, you see big boxes, you know, yeah, when you a look sarcophagus. nearby the east, you know, the east gate, but so they came later, I mean, how, what did they do with the bodies at first? Were they put in bigger no, boxes? No, okay, no, no. But first, they, they just buried them in a shroud, you know, like, oh, and oh, in the ground. Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay, the poor people are just buried in the ground. But if you were rich, you could have a rock-carved tomb. And obviously we're talking about, in this context, people who are rich. And so you would have, the first stage burial, you'd be laid on a slab and anointed, as we understand it, you know, with uh, spices and fragrances and then wrapped in a shroud and then left, and, and the grave would be sealed for a year and then they would come back a year later. And I think when Jesus is talking to that man who says, uh, when Jesus says, follow me, and he says, no, first let me bury my father. He's talking about he has a duty within that next year to do the mm -hmm. second burial of his father. Okay. He's not going to wait indefinitely for the, for the, burial, for the death of his father. Um, the, uh, the tombs that we find in the second tale period, um, you would go into them, and the, the, the body is actually on the ground. And then there's a, a pit and that they dig out, and you jump into it, so that the body is now there and then you can work repairing it, putting on the spices, rubbing it, folding it, wrapping it up, and then literally into yeah. a... Into a, um, into a long tunnel, tunnel, about kind of 18 inches high and a foot wide, and just push the bodies in. A year later, you come back, <laughs> open it up, and it's all just bones, because now the, the flesh has all been eaten. Gather yeah. everything up, and you can put it in your bone box. Yeah. yeah. And if you're interested in this kind of macabre thing, um, the best way to tell that we are, okay? It's <laughs> different. Um, if you go down to the Kidron Valley, you know the tombs of, there's a big pillar of Absalom, yes. and then to the right, you have the tombs of Benehezia and the Christ. Well, the tombs of Benehezia, you can, most of the time, you can actually walk into them. And this is by far the best example of a first temple, uh, uh, oh, sorry, first century grave site, which is exactly as uh, Aaron describes it. So you, they have a flat shelf on three sides and a pit in the middle, and then and lots of different uh, niches going off that, and then other rooms going off. To, but you have to take your torch to go and look around. But, you know, six days a week, this place is open, you can walk in and walk around. Thank you. <laughs> yes, there's no... Yeah, that's right. Oh, ah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. There's nothing that yeah, I like run to fire. Old school. Yeah. 
so we have these guys, okay, the big boys club. They bring them out, Peter and John are brought before them and they begin to question them. And the question is, okay, it starts off, seems pretty simple. By what power or by what name do you do this? Okay, like we want to know who's your source. And by what name? What does that mean by what name? In Jewish context? Who's authority? Who, who, who's, who's giving this? What rabbi are we following here? Um, and so, verse 8, what does it say? Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Anybody else got anything different, or does it all say the same? Just filled? Okay. So here we have our, we haven't had the Holy Spirit show up for, for a whole chapter here, now he does. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Greek passive. Right? So he, it, he, is, he is not doing it, so he is being filled with the Holy Spirit from outside. What does that mean? Imply, or what does it? What does what? What theological issue now comes up to your mind? Was he filled before? Yes. <laughs> Did he not have the Holy Spirit before? Surely he was there at Acts chapter two. Surely he was there at John chapter twenty. How many times can you get filled with the Holy Spirit? All the time. Be nice to be filled with the Spirit all the time. But what, what, does the tec- what is the text telling us? What is the sacred history of Acts telling us? It seems to resonate with the teaching of Jesus that when you were brought before authorities and interrogated in a situation of persecution, that there will be a specific and special function at that specific time. Yeah. And that's echoing in the, in the gospel teaching of Jesus. Yes. So, you can, so does Peter have the Holy Spirit already? Yeah. Yes. yes. Right? It's not that he hasn't got the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. What has he actually done in chapter 3? He healed somebody. Okay. Is that by his power? So even though chapter 3 doesn't tell us, okay. but now here he is being brought and something happens. So what does that mean for us? What, what, what can we learn about one of the actions of the Holy Spirit? Persecution or past time, God will always show up. I mean, the Spirit will come and He speaks to us. We don't have to think about, figure out what, what to say. say. It, it's a nice promise, isn't it? Yes. That even though you have the Holy Spirit, when you are going to be brought before uh, somebody, who's going to come and help? The Holy, Holy Spirit. Even though you've already got the Holy Spirit. Now, isn't that an interesting thought? is that the Holy Spirit can come and come and come. Beautiful. Which is... Is that why, like, um, it's okay it's when, like, I remember praying and we'll, we'll pray, come Holy Spirit, and then somebody's like, why would you say come Holy Spirit when you have the Holy Spirit in you? Right. Because that would be, there are certain streams of our traditions which would say that you all have the Holy Spirit, yeah. so, you know, you're full of the Holy Spirit. You can't get more full. Except that what we find in our sacred history is actually yes. there is something called the filling of the being fulfilled of the Holy Spirit. And maybe we're not 100% sure what that means. It's not like there's a, a measure that says once we get to 100%, uh, you can't ram any more spirit in there. Okay? As much as you might like. 
that's probably not the way to think about it. There's probably another way to think. The idea of being uh, empowered, or, or, or the way our, our Greek tells us in Acts is you're full of the Holy Spirit. And, and when we get on to the, uh, the really technical things, that when Paul starts talking about this, uses a verb that says being, being filled. In other words, be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And the implication is that we've all a bit leaky. It all leaks out somewhere. Somehow, yes. Yeah. And uh, it's, a, it's a duty to stay close. Right. The thing I like about this is that the miracle, we're, we're not told that the, the Spirit was, you know, present in, in that way, but clearly he was. And, but that was one of the things where you do a miracle and generally it goes down well with the audience. <laughs> this situation, what they're about to say and what's going to happen, it's, it's, going to, it's going to work the other way. They really are not going to um, be welcome um, in, the, in this trial you know, by the Sadducees. Basically, they are threatened, not just because they're, they're talking about the resurrection, but because they're demonstrating a power that none of them have. Mm. And some, sometimes in our Christian walk, and I don't know if you have met this, but I have, is you know, people would say, well, if God would just do a miracle, you know, write his name in the sky, then at least we'd all know. But that's actually not true, is it? People have just seen a miracle. Yes. They ain't going to believe. Some do. 5,000 new believers. Mm -hmm. But even people who see miracles will still, as what we're about to find, lie that yes. it never happened. And so you can't just turn around and say, okay, God, just do miracles and we'll all believe. That is not true. Yes. Say something about the Greek word for witness. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, the Greek word for witness? Mm -hmm. I don't know what I've talked about in my head. Martyr. Ah, oh, yes. Okay. So it's the ultimate way to witness, which this is, is the reason why I forgot it. Please <laughs> <laughs> stay away from it. Uh, so not only is the Lord in, in the good stuff that happens, he's actually particularly in the bad stuff that happens, and that he uses it really powerfully. And the ultimate way to be a witness is to give your life. All right. So Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, now be, uh, being meeting these rulers and uh, needing to, need to say something, gets to say something. And what does he say? He immediately addresses them, rulers and elders of the people, which is true, they are. If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness, one of our Gimelut Chassidim shown to this cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is an interesting thought. Mm -hmm. That's good. It is by, because where are we in terms of history? Does Israel actually exist as a state? No, it's called Judea. Right? The actual thing known as Israel has stopped a while ago. But, they are still known as Israel. Israel, the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Give a good little dig there. Even though in chapter 3 he said, oh, you did it out of ignorance, you and your leaders. Right? And he actually got him off the hook. Now he's got a chance to say, ha, you did this. Okay? So he does have an opportunity to say something. Whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that's got a sting because they don't <laughs> believe that stuff. That this man stands before you healed. That's a good challenge. He is, 
And here we quote a psalm. The stone you builders rejected has become the, the capstone. Okay. Uh, which is as Psalm 118. Um, there's an interesting midrash on that, on that psalm that uh, the Jewish people have a, as, a, as a story is that uh, when they were building the temple, the, um, uh, they, they had, the builders were chiseling away and as we know, they have to be uh, uh, of a certain family, the Levitical. They found a stone which didn't seem to fit anywhere. And it didn't fit in a wall, it didn't fit in a base, it didn't fit on the top of a pole. So they went, hmm. And they kept building the temple. And as they're building the temple, then you know, it's going up, it's going up, it's going up, it's going up. And the one that was right in the middle, the bit that puts the arches <coughs> together, the Rosh Pina, mm -hmm. right? it's not one of these things down there. It's the one up there, the one that holds the force together. Right? Mm -hmm. All the force is pushed onto that, and that's what holds the building up. Okay? Oh, what stone have we got that fits here? Nothing fits here, nothing fits here. And then someone finds the stone that they threw away and went, this one fits. Right? They have a midrash that the one that we rejected was actually the most important one in its entirety. And here you have Peter giving a, a, a take on this saying, he is that one. We, we know, you know who he is, because you know this midrash, and I'm telling you now, it's this guy. Right? And not only that, it's in connection to the temple. Oddly enough, where are we saying this? Temple. In the temple. Okay? Um, and so, it's a, it's a very poignant um, phrase, poignant uh, proof text for me. There's lots of stuff he could have said, but he chooses this one in particular. Okay? Oh, sorry, the Spirit is helping him choose this one. It's a very smart of him to do so. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That is also a very big threat to these Sadducees. Why? What's their uh, shtick in the temple? How do you get saved? Uh, yes, lots of sacrifices. Yes. <laughs> Money trade going on here. And here we have a direct challenge. Oh, brothers and sisters, salvation is found in no one else. You already need, should have known this anyway. The blood and bulls of goats don't do anything. Most of the sacrifices in Leviticus are not for intentional sin anyway. But here, the salvation is found in no one else except uh, there is no other name uh, under heaven. Then they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So they... Uh, they, 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 they know who Jesus was. Of course. Okay. Yes. Kafas definitely knows. He had him in his house. Mm -hmm. okay. um, but since they could not, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing that they could say because they can't say, "Oh, that never happened," because the guy's right there. <laughs> right? Any any witness, anybody would be able to say, "Well, that guy's actually uh, true." And so they have a, they have a real problem. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin. Now, what is the Sanhedrin? Anyone know? Anyone know how to describe the Sanhedrin? It's a council. Supreme Court judges. What else? What's its makeup? Aria, do you know off the top of your head? It's a mixture of uh, both the Sadducee and the Pharisee part parties. 
Yep, it's a mixed and kit. It was chaired in, in, in the late 2nd century by the Pharisees, actually. Yep. And the, and the school of Shammai had taken it over by the time uh, it's been described here. Everyone know the two schools of Hillel and Shammai? Okay, there are streets named after them. Um, they exist about a generation before Jesus. They have lots and lots of debates and discussions. Uh, one has a tendency to be more lenient. Uh, one has a tendency to be more harder in his uh, judgments. That Shammai tends to be harder in his judgments. Uh, do you know on the temple grounds where they were meeting? Um, until about AD 30, the, um, the, the Sanhedrin met very close to the temple in one of the rooms there. But from AD 30, they, because they maybe wanted a slightly better place, they moved into the Royal Stir, which is the big building all the way along the southern edge of the Temple Mount, you know, the marketplace area. And they reserved for themselves within the middle of that an area for their meetings, or maybe up, up at one end, but it was a, you know, a much you know, more impressive and bigger space. And what is interesting is that the timing of this being AD 30 could probably means that when Jesus, towards the end of his ministry, goes up there and starts turning over tables and making an all sorts of a disturbance, they were there and saw it mm. and realized that he was you know, doing it against them. You know, because basically spreading all the money over the floor and turning over people's tables and chairs um, was quite a uh, disruptive act, not, not just physically, but actually symbolically. And the really powerful thing is that um, Jesus quotes, uh, he says that my temple should be a house, house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. Mm -hmm. And he's quoting Jeremiah chapter 7. But the real power of what he's quoting is not just that they've made it in a den of thieves, but if you know your Bible and the guys he was talking to did know their scriptures and would have probably known what Jeremiah 7 was all about, Jeremiah 7 was about how the Lord had judged the tabernacle at Shiloh and it had become, and then it was destroyed by the Philistines and it became a place that was frequented by robbers. And so Jesus is saying, you've made this a den of thieves. And he was basically, the implication was that this place is gonna be destroyed just like the tabernacle was. And that's a really kind of powerful thing. But he didn't say that, it just, he, he hinted at it. Yeah. So next time, just go and read uh, uh, Jeremiah chapter seven, that, pa that paragraph. That was part of the accusation of the Lord at his trial and at the return of the trial of Stephen as well. Yes, yeah, they say they were, you're gonna destroy the temple. They were about their temple. Yeah. So what are we gonna do with these men? Okay, they got themselves an issue, they ask, okay? and. Uh, Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. So what do these guys actually want to do? They've seen a miracle. Yes. And what's their reaction? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's like, they've actually physically seen a miracle. And instead of going, wow, praise the Lord, let's have a prayer session. Let's, like, really get stuck in and worship the Lord. They've been like, how can we, like sweep this under the table and pretend it didn't happen. <laughs> I mean, but... That's usually the crossroads where we find ourselves at when it likes questions. 
see something so visible, so real, and then there's no leadership. We look around and what are we going to do? What are we going to do? These guys set the tone for exactly what not to do. They set the tone for what not to do. This is poor leadership 101. Yes. First thing we're going to do. I'll oh, describe this as um, my mind's made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. They're, they're, they're very, very poor winners. One of the names of the Ark of the Covenant, in fact, one of its most common names of the Ark of the Covenant, wasn't the Aron Habrit, which is what means Ark of the Covenant. What, do you know what it's called? The Ark of, 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 the, of the Witness. Mm. The Ark of the Testimony. The Witness. So it's, a, it's something you could see. Okay? You could see it. it would be, and it was part of the, 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 what you saw was in your community. Okay, so... Um, okay, but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people... Right, so we don't want to tell good news. We want to hide good news. <laughs> We have to warn these men that they can, can't speak this anymore, right? We're going to tell them to stop, and if they don't stop, we'll tell them to stop again. So then they called them in, commanded them not to speak or teach. Uh, they are being forbidden, and the response is, Peter and John reply, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So again, these things were seen. These things were heard. This is not something they read in the book. These are, uh, they are witnesses. And uh, I think that's very important. Um, and heard. They've also heard things. Um, hence, the, again, the constant uh, command to listen to Jesus. Jesus is saying things. People are wanting to say things. Faith comes by hearing. After further threats, they let them go because they could not decide how to punish them. Who's the they? Rulers. Rulers. At this stage, we're now with who? Who's in the Sanhedrin in the morning? Pharisees are there too. Yeah. Okay, though it doesn't specifically say that, but a full court meeting of the Sanhedrin must include Pharisees as well. Okay. So now it's not just Sadducees. It's uh, people, uh, uh, the Sadducees don't get their way. So let's take a vote. Who wants to smack them around a bit? And the, and the Pharisees go, you don't. Okay, so uh, they are warned, don't speak. But there's nothing actually that they can do, uh, which is a good thing. Um, so they, they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Now why do you think we have to include that piece of information. Because lots of people for you know, four decades have known this, four decades have known this person is late. Been there a while. Yeah. And after it's 40, it's okay, it's always 40, everything 40. There's lots of 40s in the Bible, yeah. Numbers always pop up and they're very, always very interesting. 40, when someone says the word 40, what do you think of? Fasting? That's because we're in Lent. Okay. <laughs> wilderness. 40, 40 years in the wilderness. 40 days of rain. 40 days before we go up to heaven. Yes, there's a lot of... 40 is such a very powerful loaded, loaded term. And so it's no 
coincidence is not a kosher word. This man is, is uh, in terms of like the sacred history, over 40. Okay. Um, so on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. How many people have they got? At least 5,000. At least 5,000. Okay, we're not sure how many he's heading back to. Okay. Um, notice we don't get any other d- uh, disciples or apostles being mentioned. It's not to say that you know, Nathan welcomed them gladly. Lazarus was there going, so, you know, another one resurrected. That's just awesome. Or healed. Brilliant. Um, it's, we're not sure where they are or what they're doing. In fact, according to tradition, anyone know where Lazarus ended up? Nope. Cyprus. Okay, the, uh, once he was resurrected, people kept trying to kill him because he was a proof of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. So the safest thing was to smuggle him away and he ended up becoming the uh, Bishop of Cyprus. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, so, then, so then they report that what the, the chief priests and elders have said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And then we get the prayer of the people. It's very interesting. There's not many times in the Bible where you end up with this prayer. Uh, where you actually get a recorded prayer of the people. This is how the people prayed. And they pray. Okay? Sovereign Lord. Okay? King. That's a very, very Jewish thing to say. Sovereign Lord. Kingly Lord. They said, You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Okay? Uh, what's, how do we start our creeds? We believe in God who... The maker of heaven and earth. Okay. Very Jewish thing to say. Very interesting way to start the prayer. What's the, what, how is it, what are they actually doing? Telling God exactly who he is. Okay. Not that he doesn't know, but he has forgotten. Okay. Part of the memory aid for us ourselves is to tell God who he is. Because okay. that also then speaks to us. So, you spoke by who? How does God speak? Spirit. Holy Spirit. Okay, so what is one of the acts of the Holy Spirit? Speaking. To speak for God. Okay. So you spoke by the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit speak? Through the mouth. Through the mouth of? David. David, once again. Okay, so it's very specific. It is possible to say that the Holy Spirit speaks through you. The Holy Spirit speaks through you. We then have to remember, come to that discussion... How much weight do we give the Holy Spirit speaking through David and the Holy Spirit speaking through you? If we give it the same weight, then what's coming out of your mouth is therefore also Bible. Right? Same, so, and so the early church, remember, we did this discussion back in Acts chapter 2. The early church had to figure out what it meant to have a prophet in their midst. Had to figure out what it meant to have prophecies spoken. Had to figure out what it meant to have the Holy Spirit do certain things. They had to learn how to, to weigh it up, how they could test the spirits. But here, we get a, a clear, clear a picture that the Holy Spirit is speaking through the, his servant, our father David. And we quote uh, a psalm again. Remember? Look at interesting how we're quoting lots of psalms. As prophecy. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand against the rule, and the rulers gather t- together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now, if you read that, who would you assume are the nations and who are the peoples and who are the kings of the earth and the rulers? Who are all these people? Romans. Romans. Who else? 
I mean, who, who are they according to the early community? Jews? Yeah. Yes, they are nations, because that's what it says. Why did the Goyim rage and the people's plot in vain? But who are the rulers and the, and the, the people who come together? It's their own people yes. right? who are raging against the anointed one. So they're taking David, which we might, in, in our context, go, it's other, other nations who are ruling. Here they're saying, well, yes, it's Romans as well, but it's our people as well. Okay? Our rulers have argued against the Holy One. And here's our proof text. Okay? Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles. So we've got one Jew, one, one Gentile, and some more Gentiles. Met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus. Right? So everybody's against the Lord. Okay? And not just the Gentiles. I find the peoples of Israel, at that end of verse 27, interesting. Because, well, I have this uh, imagination of when Jesus was tried. You know, he, he was received when he came into Jerusalem well by the crowds and they were worshipping him and uh, seeing him as the coming Messiah. And then uh, a few days later, he's uh, you know, taken, uh, arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and taken to prison. And the following morning, there's a, a trial, very, really quite early. And taken to um, before Pontius Pilate and there's a crowd shouting there for his uh, death, shouting crucify him. And I, because it was so early in the morning, I don't think it was just people turning up. I really think this was rent a crowd. <laughs> in other words, the high priest said, said to their servants, you know, go to your friends, get them, you know, Seven o'clock in the morning, wherever it is, you know, there's a free meal in it, turn up and just go just with the flow. I mean, I think this was a coerced crowd. Uh, I mean, there may have been some people who would have been cheering Jesus on the, with the palm branches when he came in, but I think it's actually a different crowd. So, uh, and I don't think that's, an, uh, you know, a stretch of the imagination to, to look at it that way because I can't see the, the general population turning up on a completely unannounced occasion, re ready to join in with a, um, uh, to, to be the shouting crowd at a trial very early in the morning at, the Herod, uh, at uh, Pontius Pilate's palace, in Herod's palace up on, just over here. Um, so the reason why then, then it's, it's curious to see that it says, and the peoples of Israel, because I think really there was a, a sizable slice of people that regretted what was done to Jesus. And even when he was being carried out, carrying his cross out to the place of crucifixion, the women were weeping, mm. realizing this, this is terrible. You know, there were people that realized this is a travesty of justice and a, a major disaster. Um, and Jesus actually says some thing, interesting things to the women. But anyway, so I think there's a, there's a a significant section of the population there that you could argue were not culpable on what happened in that morning in the presence of Pontius Pilate. Yet they're still included in the statement. Yes. Yes, they are. Yeah. And so the Gentiles, the people of Israel, everyone's here, conspiring against the Holy Servant, whom you have anointed. So we're praying. This is a prayer to God. You, you've made him the Messiah. All the Calvinists love this next verse. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Predestination. Predestination, okay. 
Good old Calvin. Right, how, how would you read that verse? How would you understand? This, this, this is a prayer. They're praying to the Lord. And uh, so Herod, Lord, Pilate, Lord, uh, the Gentiles as Romans, and, uh, and us ourselves, we have all gone to kill your holy servant, whom you made the Messiah, which, by the way, uh, you wanted anyway. Um, how, how would you... This is, prayers of theology. Okay? We might say we think, you know, I believe X, Y, Z. But listen to the prayers that come out your mouth. That's how you really think. If you, if you say, uh, I love the Lord, and yet every single prayer you pray is, Dear Lord, please give me a Mercedes, what do you really love? Myself. A Mercedes. <laughs> okay? And so it's, it's very important for us to listen to our own prayers. And that would be, which is a, which is a good uh, indicator of where we really are. It's not what goes in your mouth that's important, it's what? Comes out. Okay, so here we have this interesting prayer. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. I mean, Jesus addresses this situation a little bit when he says, it's necessary that these things happened. In other words, that he was betrayed by Judas. But woe to him who does this. Yeah. That's so right. the, the, the framework is that the Lord's making this happening and he's containing the universe to go in a certain direction, but that does not remove responsibility and guilt from those people involved. That's right. It's not that God compelled them to act this way, yes. but he did use their free will acts to make sure his will was done. Which is... His glory was in the agony. His glory was in the mystery. His glory was in the not obvious. In the not obvious. And it is a delight for kings, an honor of a king to search that, those mysteries out. Uh, yeah. So, interesting piece of theology in this prayer that they acknowledge that uh, that that God can use even even evil men. Okay. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. So, what their 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 desire is? They want, they want some more courage. Okay? They don't want to be silent, they want to speak. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So there's a prayer for us to continue in a miraculous fashion for healings and signs through Jesus. After they prayed, they, the place where they were meeting was shaken. So we get that. that somehow there was a in the connection between heaven and earth, wherever those two realms intersect, there is a, a physical trembling, a shake. The earth, when, it, when heaven comes close, struggles. Okay? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God. So, this is like about the third or fourth time now that they've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes. So, and they all were, not just now Peter and John. But they have prayed for boldness and uh, encouraged to speak. And so what was the answer? The Holy Spirit. So one of the activities of the Holy Spirit is for what? Courage. Courage. 
boldness. Yes, and I think that's a great thing, uh, probably. Remember when we sat down and we wrote down all these kinds of things on the board? Um, I don't know, I think boldness was one of them, but, but that definitely is one of his activities. Okay, is to, is to give us boldness and courage. I like the idea of um, the place shaking when, when something, when the angels in heaven hear something that they've been really wanting to hear for a long time. And maybe they start jumping around and partying and stamping the floor <laughs> and the Lord just kind of dials down, or dials the connection between heaven and earth up so that the vibrations come through. And the next time you see it happen is in the jail in Philippi. Paul and Silas are singing songs in the middle of the night. They're chained up and the, uh, the angels are joining in with the party jumping around. And the, uh, the connection between heaven and earth is tightened and the place shakes. Yeah. And the things fall off. Yeah. yeah. It's just, just a slightly curious way I have of looking at these things. <laughs> just the, uh, yeah. Heaven and earth suddenly become close and you yeah. hear the excitement of the angels yes. causing, having a party. Yeah, in, I was studying with some rabbis the other day, on oh, Monday actually, and um, the, the, uh, they were saying that when God came down on Mount Sinai and it was all shaking, you know, he came with 600,000 angels. Wow. Now, why did they have that number? That's in one for each of the members of the uh, people. Correct. The, uh, yeah, there were 600,000 men in the Exodus. So there's an early Jewish tradition that everyone has an angel. And you go, oh, that's fantastic. Everyone's got their angel, everyone's got a guardian angel. And you go, that's just brilliant. The next question was, what do these angels do? Because obviously they don't do very much. Because what do these 600,000 men immediately do when Moses is on the mountain for 40 days? They worship a golden cow. <laughs> so, all right, it's great to have a guardian angel. Fantastic, okay? But it's not going to stop you from doing something stupid. But it's still a nice thought to that heaven and earth are close, and when God comes, you know, he's there, and everyone gets their personal touch of heaven. All right. Well, brothers and sisters, we will stop there, and um, we'll pick it up with people selling them their possessions, which leads, of course, to that interesting episode in Acts 5. Because so far, everything about the Holy Spirit has been positive. <coughs> now something's going to switch to negative. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.